This morning, we're going to conclude this series that we've been doing called Focus. We've been talking about the prayers of Nehemiah. And when we first started this series, we, we talked about this prayer of purpose, right? Nehemiah came to understand his purpose. And there's something wonderful that, that happens. In fact, there's even something liberating happens when we understand our purpose. The, the second prayer that we looked at in, in week two of this series, we looked at, at the prayer of favor. When Nehemiah is standing before the king, and, and in that moment, he prays that microsecond prayer, God, give me favor. And listen, God has a way of stepping into any situation that we find ourselves in when we allow Him to be Lord, and He, and he can work it just in incredible ways. We, we looked at, in week three, we looked at the prayer of adversity when we find ourselves in a difficult situation, when we find ourselves in that, that troubling hour, that God, can, that God can walk us through that, that David was correct when he said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. We talked about that prayer of, of blessing. Last week, the prayer for wisdom. I want to remind you, I asked you last week, for those of you that weren't here, I, I asked the question, who's the smartest person you know and who's the wisest person you know? And oftentimes, they're not the same. And, and unfortunately, what can happen is this, is we can chase after intelligence while leaving wisdom on the side of the road. In fact, I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that, that one of the significant issues that plagues our culture, one of the significant issues that plagues the church today is people are chasing after intelligence rather than leaning into God's wisdom. And what we want is this, is we don't want man's understanding. We want heaven's wisdom. And James 3 talks to us about this wisdom that comes from heaven and what it looks like. The final prayer that Nehemiah prays is the final prayer, it's the final statement in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13.30 ends with Nehemiah praying a prayer. And he makes, he makes this statement, remember me, oh my God, for good. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Father, let that prayer, let the prayer of Nehemiah, let it reverberate in our heart, in our mind, in the depths of our soul, that we can say, as Nehemiah says, remember me, O God, for my good. I want to… I want to make a confession to you this morning. I am… I'm not as passionate about the things of God as I once was. I'd like to… On the surface, I'd like to think that I am, but I'm I'm not. I'm not… I'm not as quick to recognize opportunities to witness to the lost. I, I, it just, it, I just don't do it. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as quick to, in, to engage in a, in a worship expression. My, my, my mind is in lots of different places. I'm, I'm not as brave in my ministry moments as I was in those, 
in those days when I first connected with the Lord. I think of some of the crazy things that I did in the early days of my faith journey. And man, they were, they were crazy. Uh, as a teenager, I, I got involved with this coffee house that was happening in the downtown area of this city that I'd lived at the time. It was a, it was a coffee house that was run by a tiny church. That, man, they didn't have any resources. And, uh, and all we had, we had five cheap microphones, a big old honking speaker, and a PV self-powered mixing board. And we would pop popcorn and, and make some coffee and tea. And we would be, hey, you want to come and sing a song for Jesus? Come on. Right? And we'd be there uh, every, every Thursday night, every Friday night, every Saturday night. And, and can I just tell you that colorful people would come and hang out with us. Uh, and there are some times that people would come and they would make a joyful noise to the Lord. There are some times people would come and they would just make a noise. Uh, we, we had more than our share of flakes and nuts. I mean, it was crazy. We would go down on the street and we would, we would share the love of Christ with people. I remember I was, I was witnessing to this one guy who was obviously incredibly inebriated. And I'm trying to talk to him about the love of Jesus. And, and I, I'm pretty, I'm into it, uh, Rob, and, until he threw up on my shoes. At the point he threw up on my shoes, I wasn't so interested in witnessing to him at that point. <laughs> Gave drunks rides home. I, I mean, just, we, 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 we promoted major Christian concerts, had no money to do it, right? I mean, as a teenager, I'm signing contracts that, 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 that I'm putting myself on the line for thousands of dollars. I'm making four bucks an hour. But I just had this sense that God would show up, right? My, my junior year in high school, and, and, and this is where I, where I came to Christ. I came to Christ the first day of school my junior year in high school. And, 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 and after, after, I, after I became a Christ follower, I discovered there was this, really, there was this vibrant campus Bible study that was happening on my high school campus. And, and in my town at that time, there, there, there are now three, but in, in, in my town at that time, uh, there were two major high schools, Davenport West, um, which was uh, the, the nice modern building kind of out in the, the newer part of the city. And that was the school that I attended. And then there was Davenport Central. And Davenport Central was one of the first schools in America that had metal detectors. It was, it was down in the heart of the city, and it was much more ethnically, ethnically diverse. And, and it was known as being uh, the rough school. Not, not, as, not as rough as across a river into Rock Island, but, but Davenport Central was kind of a, a, it was a rough school. Well, I was at Davenport West, and, and we had this, we had this, this, this wonderful going um, campus Bible study group. There would be uh, upwards of 100 students there each Wednesday morning. It was a group called Rock Group, Reaching Our Campus for the King. And, uh, and I found out that Davenport Central did not have a campus Bible study. So I, my senior year in high school, I switched high schools for the sole purpose of going to that school to start a campus Bible study. I would like to think that I would do that again today, but can I tell you I'm not so sure. I'm not, I'm not so sure. 
Because as I got into adulthood and, and the busyness of life and the, and the activities of the day and, and the challenges of, of meeting budgets and, and things of that nature, I, I don't have that same zeal. I've experienced over the years spiritual drift. And here's what I know. I know this, that in this room and, 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 and people watching on their computers and their televisions, that I'm, I'm not alone in this. In fact, even some of our, some of our middle schoolers that are, that are in the room this morning, you, there, was a, there was a point in your life, maybe something that happened in children's church a few years ago, or an experience that you had at kids' camp, where you became aware of the power of God in a significant way, and, and it impacted you to the core. But that was a long time ago, and, and now the, the pressures from your peers, they've, they've moved you. You're not… You're not as passionate in worship as you were. In fact, you're even nervous about raising your hands in worship. There is a place in your life that given even the hint of an opportunity, you're going to talk to somebody about Jesus. And now it makes you nervous even to consider inviting a neighbor to join you on Easter Sunday. By the way, can I tell you something, student, teenager? You're not alone because your parents are in the exact same spot. And much of the church is in the exact same spot. See, we've drifted. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. You don't have to do anything to drift spiritually. Let me say that again. You don't have to do anything to drift spiritually. Because of the world that we live in, because of the sin nature, because of the carnality of the world that we live in, living in active relationship with Jesus Christ will always be swimming against the current. It will. It'll always be swimming against the current. And so it requires us to stay actively engaged. When we, when we pause, when we coast, we will inevitably drift. We will. We see this in the story of Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem. Nehemiah is just to recap the story, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king in the capital of Susa. He is the cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes. And when Nehemiah finds out the condition of Jerusalem, it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart to the point that he, he mourns for several days. He fasts and then he prays. And he prays this amazing prayer of confession. And he says, God, 
whatever you want to do in me and through me to bring restoration to your people and to bring restoration to your city, I'm yours. He then, he goes before the king, and on, on, a, on a particular day, he knows it's his, it's his moment, and he allows the king to see him be sad. And the king asks him, why are you sad? You've not been sad in my presence before. And Nehemiah says, how can I be happy when my homeland and my people are in disgrace? And God uses the king to show favor upon Nehemiah, sends Nehemiah back to Jerusalem, and Nehemiah goes to restore a wall, and not just to restore a wall, but to restore God's original intent for His people and for that place. And in 52 days, they rebuild this wall. Once the wall is rebuilt, Nehemiah has the idea, this is a scripture that we looked at last week, and God put it in my mind, Nehemiah says, and God put it in Nehemiah's mind to have the people gathered together and to, and to reposition the people as they were in the city before they were taken away into captivity some 130 years earlier. And as, as the as the city is reset, as the people are repositioned in the place where God intended them to be, it was the cry of the people, not the leadership, not Nehemiah. It was the cry of the people. The people said, we want to hear what God has to say. And as the law was being spoken, the people began to fall on their face and mourn because they realized how far, how incredibly far they were from God's plan. And the Levites, the priests, the, the spiritual leadership of the day said to the people, as the people are hearing God's commands and they know they're not following God's commands and they start wailing and, 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 and bowing down to the ground, the, the, the priests say, no, 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 don't, don't, don't confuse this moment. This is not a time for you to feel bad about how far you are from God because recognize what God's doing. God's not demonstrating to you. God's not letting you see how far you are from Him for you to feel guilty. God's allowing you to see how far you are from Him because what He's doing is He's restoring you back to right relationship with Him. And He's letting you see that it's an opportunity for a new day, that it's an opportunity for a new moment, that it's an opportunity for a new season. So it's not time to mourn, it's a time to rejoice. And for a week, they threw a huge party. And at the end of that, they had a solemn assembly. And they rededicated themselves to the plan of God and to the purpose of God. They signed, they put their, their name, okay? And leaders of families and leaders of clans said, we're making this new covenant with God. We're, we're in. And not only are we in, we're all in. If you had that moment, right? Where you, where you recognize that this is God's plan for you and this is where you are. And God says, listen, come back to my plan for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? God, I want to walk in your purpose. I don't want to walk in your plan. I want to walk in your victory. And God, I'm in. Well, they were so much in that they put their name on the dotted line. Not only did they say yes to the covenant, they signed a document that said yes to the covenant, there was, a, there was a, a hunger for the things of God. 
Then Nehemiah is called back to Susa. The king calls Nehemiah back to Susa. And during the time that Nehemiah is gone, there are several things that happen. And, and, and we see these recorded in Nehemiah chapter 13. And it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a powerful example for us. I believe not just a powerful example for us, I believe it's a prophetic word for us today. So let's see what happened. Nehemiah goes away. The people get caught up in the day-to-day activities of life. And all of a sudden, we see drift. We see drift. The first thing that happens is this, and you'll see this in Nehemiah chapter 13, that there was a, there was a place in the temple, and it was a room that was consecrated. It was dedicated. It was the storehouse. It was a place where God's Word says, bring the whole tithe and put it in the storehouse. That was the place that the, where the tithe of the people was to go. It was, it was where, where, they, where the, the, that which was dedicated to the kingdom of God, it, it's where it was supposed to be brought. And what Eliashib, the high priest, does, he takes all of the devoted things out of this room and eliminates the place where the people can bring their offerings. And instead, what he does is he allows this guy, Tobiah, to move into that place. Tobiah, name that might not be familiar to you, but remember, when Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, there are three guys that are vocal in in opposition to Nehemiah, Sambalit, Tobiah, and Jeshem the Arab. So, so Tobiah is one of these men that were in, in overt opposition to the restoration of Jerusalem, to the rebuilding of the wall, to the reestablishment of godly order. And the high priest allows this man who was overt in opposition to the reestablishment of godly order, and he allows him to take up residence in the temple. It is so easy, listen to me, it's so easy for the house of God to be compromised. It's so easy for the house of God to be compromised. It's just a, it's a matter of priorities. placing God in his, in his rightful place. I'm, all, I'm always a little bit, um, I'm always a little bit nervous when I have to broach a subject like this because I never want somebody to misconstrue my motivation. And so, I I want you to know this. I want you to know uh, today, I want you to know that I'm a tither, okay? I give the first 10% of everything I get to God's house. Beyond that, I give offerings. We give in missions. We give in benevolence offerings. 
um, we, we give, and we don't try to figure out how little we can give. We try to figure out how much we can give. And, and as a pastor, I never allow an offering to be received in this church that I don't participate in personally. Here's the thing about the tithe. God's not interested in your money, and God's not interested in getting 10% of your money. But the Word of God says this. It says that we're supposed to give the first to God. It's not just 10%. It's the first tenth. And Scripture says that it redeems the rest. And, and here's what happens is Eliashib, in allowing Tobiah to live in that place, what he does is this. He even prevents the people from, from being able to actively engage because there's no place to put it to, to, for them to bring their tithe. There's no resource in the house of God. And so it tells us this in Nehemiah 13 that the priests aren't even doing their priestly duties because they've gone back to take care of their own fields because they have to work in their own fields because they have to do that to provide for their family because the house of God isn't providing for their family. And so Tobiah living in the temple, it has this massive ripple effect because of misaligned priorities. There's a reason why the Word of God says do not neglect are, 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 don't, do, do, not, do not neglect the gathering together of the brethren as some are in the habit of doing, even more so as you see the end of time approaching. And friends, let's be honest, and it's true even for many of us in the room today, that coming to church has become something of convenience and not something of commitment. As long as it, as long as it fits into my schedule, as long as there isn't anything else big happening, as long as the weather is okay, I'm going to be in the house of God. And listen, when it comes time for the offering, I'll look at my checkbook, and if I've got something left over in that bank balance, I'll give a little bit to God's kingdom rather than giving to God first. It's an establishment of order. And I've said this many times, I'm going to say it again. Listen to me. Hear my heart this morning, church. Anything Anything you put in front of God in your life is going to be a major stressor for you. It's going to be a major pressure point for you. Teenager, you've got a relationship that you know is not right. You know it compromises God's plan for you. That is always going to be a stress for you. It's always going to be an anxiety for you. Sir, you put your career in front of your relationship with God. Your career is always going to be a major anxiety for you, a major pressure point for you. You put your family. Well, I, I, I got to be careful about how I manage this God thing because I don't want to offend my family. I don't want to offend my parents or I don't want to offend my children. You put your family over your relationship with God and your family is going to be a major point of anxiety for you. It's going to be a major pressure point for you. If you don't believe me, look at the story of King David. And the ripple effect, the generational ripple effect of David putting his family and putting his children in front of holiness. Your finances. If you don't put God in your finances, your finances will always be a major stressor for you. And it's, it's about that, that reestablishing the the priority of the, of the house of God. And that's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah comes back and he reestablishes order. 
And then notice in, in, in Nehemiah 13, here's what he says. He says, remember four times in Nehemiah 13. He says, remember me, O God. After he reestablishes order, he says, remember me, O God, according to what I've done. Right? And what I've done for the house of God. Then, then the second thing that he deals with is this. He deals with the, the, the day of God. Because when there's spiritual drift, the house of God is compromised, and then the day of God is compromised. Right? The second thing that Nehemiah deals with is this. The Sabbath has become really, in essence, a flea market. Instead of the Sabbath being a day where, where, they, where they consecrate themselves to the Lord and they spend time fellowshipping in God's presence, it has become, where can I buy some cheap trinket, some garbage piece that I don't need? And there's all, there are all these people that are coming, uh, not, not just, the, not just, the, not just the, the people of Jerusalem, but there's all these merchants that are coming from far and wide, and they're coming to Jerusalem, and they're setting up their little tables on the Sabbath day to sell their junk, right? And so even back in Jerusalem, this isn't, a, this isn't just a problem today, even back in Jerusalem in the, in the, in the fifth century B.C., they would be buying things that they don't they, that they don't need with money that they don't have to try to impress people they don't like. So Nehemiah says this, he says, no, listen, the day of the Lord is to be sacred. The Sabbath is to be sacred. And so he commanded that the, that the gates be shut before the start of the Sabbath. And even in doing that, the outside traders, you'll see it there in Nehemiah chapter 13, the outside traders, they come and they set up camp right outside the tents. And Nehemiah says this, listen, I'm going to tell you, don't be coming here on the Sabbath. And this time I'm telling you, come back and I'm going to show you. Right? He says it there. He says, listen, come back again and I'm going to deal with you by force. It's not the only people that he deals with by force. <laughs> Because here's the next thing that he deals with. He deals with the man of God being compromised. It tells us here in Nehemiah chapter 13, it tells us that the priests, they're marrying pagan women. Right? They're marrying pagan women. women. Even, even the, the grandson of the high priest has married the daughter of Sambalot. Nehemiah 13, 28, and one of the sons of Jehida, the son of Elisha, the high priest, he was a son-in-law of Sambalot the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. See, if we allow the house of God to be compromised, and if we allow the day of God to be compromised, it's only a matter of time until the servant of God is compromised. And, and, and I can assure you this, they never dreamed that that would take place. They never dreamed that that would happen. And yet, it, it just naturally flowed one to another. The house of God is compromised. And Nehemiah says, remember me, O God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God and for its services. 
Nehemiah brings about a, a restoration of dedication. When the day of God is compromised, he says, remember me, O God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Because what Nehemiah does is this. He, he calls for a return to principles. There's a restoration of the dedication of the things of God, and there's a return to the principles that God has called us to. The servant of God is compromised. And Nehemiah, in that moment, he brings a reprimand of justice. In fact, it tells us this in Nehemiah 13. It's, 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 it's fascinating to me, okay? So, he, 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 he makes a statement. He says, moreover, in those days, I also saw Jews who had married the women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke in the language of Ashdod, yet none of them could recognize the language of the Jews, and this was true language by language. So I confronted them and cursed them. Some of the men I beat, others I plucked out their hair. Do you think Nehemiah was a little bit angry? But how can this be? Listen, their children are not going to be able to understand the law of the Lord because they can't even speak Hebrew. Nehemiah is so distraught over this. He's slapping guys around. He's pulling guys by the hair. And some of them, he said, you're done, you're out. It is time for the church to return to a place of genuine dedication to the passions of God, to the purposes of God. <laughs> Nehemiah says this, remember them, O God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from every foreign and appointed, from every foreign and appointed work crews for the priests and the Levites. I had each of them to his task, and I provided the wood offering at the appointed times and the first fruits. He brings them to a place of repentance. He reestablishes first fruits. He reestablishes the Sabbath. And then he makes that last statement, remember me, O God, for good. Remember me, O God, for good. Father, let, let those words, let it resonate in your house today. Remember me, oh God. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by the ministry of Calvary Orlando. We invite you to join us in person at Calvary Orlando for one of our Sunday morning worship experiences each Sunday at 1030 a.m. To find out more about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryorlando.org. Here you can find our latest events and ministry opportunities. Thanks for listening and God bless.